Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, what should Trump do about China? Donald Trump has been complaining about China's balance of trade often enough. He says they're running their currency too low so they can flog more stuff. Is he right about that? And if so, what can he do or what should he do about it? Well, earlier this year, Donald Trump was calling China the grand champion of currency manipulation. He's upset with the value of the Chinese yuan, which uh, he reckons is giving them an unfair advantage on exports. These days, the US dollar is worth about 110 Japanese yuan. Uh, go back just five years and it was worth 80 Japanese yuan. So it's certainly cheaper for Americans to buy stuff from China these days. And they do, of course, buy the shiploads. So is China playing by a different rule book, Steve. And is President Trump right to want tariffs imposed on it uh, to protect his own industry? I mean, last year, the trade balance was $347 billion in favour of China. Uh, go back to 1985, and of course, there was no trade deficit at all. Yeah, that's right. They didn't trade with China at all. Uh, and uh, and this is, this is, I mean, you've got to take your hats off to the Chinese, in particular, Deng Xiaoping, uh, because his uh, ascendancy occurred after the extreme experiments of Madame Mao, uh, not uh, Chairman Mao, as much that he destroyed large parts of the country as well, but Madame Mao's uh, total communism approach. And Deng Xiaoping was you know, chucked out to the uh, rural uh, penitentiaries and told to contemplate his navel. And then when the when the, 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 the political system began to collapse uh, in the 1980s, uh, back comes Deng again. And because it's because Madame Mao's policies themselves failed. So there were there was mass starvation, uh, there, there was poverty, there were riots, et cetera, et cetera. So they had to rehabilitate Deng Xiaoping. He came back in, he got rid of Madame Mao and her friends, the Gang of Four, as they call them, which these days when I mention the Gang of Four, people think I'm talking about a boy band. Uh, <laughs> Just know, as lethal. Of, yeah. Sorry, sorry young listeners. Um, so that's that was the uh, revival, and Deng Xiaoping's uh, slogan was he doesn't care whether the cat's black or white so long as it catches mice, and he was effectively saying the market economy doesn't matter. Let's bring it in. You know, let's let's try marketing. Uh, and secondly, uh, they very intelligently exploited loopholes in the American trade rules. So. One of the trade laws, I've forgotten the actual section number, but one of them enables American in, uh, corporations to pay no tariffs if they, when this is when tariff barriers are much higher, of course, if they, re, if they import back goods they exported out for further processing to a developed nation. So a component part goes over to China, China adds immense value to it, and that component part could be quite small, I guess, and then it comes back in again, no tariff required. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, you're paying ridiculously low wages at the time. Yeah. Uh, the, the capital was – the infrastructure was provided for you. By the way, I I visited the – and this is an incidental story, but I took a bunch of journalists to China for a conference on journalism in 
two over over the uh, December period, and we actually visited the, the uh, very first free trade zone. China established the Shenzhen free trade zone, and we got there, and we'd had we'd, we'd loved, we loved our Chinese guests. We had a wonderful time together, uh, but we got there, and of all things, the Australian company CSR was laying the concrete for building the uh, three trade zone. And we, we turned up and the manager, not only was the manager an Aussie, but his wife was this sort of wonderful Palm Beach uh, personality girl. I think you know the type I mm, mean. Mm. Warm and warm and and and, 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 and tanned. Just warm and tanned. And I, <laughs> I will not discuss her other attributes. And uh, and everybody just totally relaxed. We had a great old barbecue. But there they were laying this free trade zone. And that was the one presentation we got in a whole tour of China where I was, we just simply walked away impressed. And that was that their policy was to take advantage of this um, loophole in the American tax uh, tariff laws, but to also uh, require that any company that set up operations in that free trade zone had to have a Chinese partner. And within five years, the Chinese partner had to own half the business. Yeah. And pass now, pass on a lot of the intellectual property in the process, obviously. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is where the Chinese Communist Party is dominated by engineers. Another favourite tale of mine uh, was a Chinese delegation came out to Australia and one of the uh, members went to the bathroom and he just didn't come back. 20 minutes, half an hour, and people got worried and actually opened the bathroom door to break it down to see what he's doing. There he was taking apart the double flush mechanism to work out how it functioned. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful story. So, look, I mean, China was uh, was was smart uh, in that they saw that there was a land grab opportunity, didn't they? I mean, yeah, they, they yeah, said, that's right. Here, "Here's a chance for us to uh, uh, become very dominant in the world because we've got low labor costs. There's an opportunity. You know, there's export markets there. All we need is money to set up the companies to take advantage of this situation. And where's that, that money going to come from? Uh, well, it can be it can be Chinese state money, or it can be money created." Because uh, anything they need to buy from overseas uh, will more than, you know, they'll get foreign currency for that, which will more than compensate for what they have to borrow from overseas. Well, what, yeah, what was like, was partly was the government money, which established the free trade zone in the first instance. But the money that actually built the place was, of course, foreign money coming in deliberately. So it would record it as a trade deficit for China. But what was actually happening was companies like General Motors, Ford, uh, Motorola, were all establishing plants there and they were simply shipping the plants from America to China and building them, mm. you, know, you know, the components and then building them in the free trade zone then to take the uh, raw materials from mainly from China uh, with Chinese labour and process them and export them back to America. Now, that was a, a huge uh, industrialization boost for China financed by foreign money. But not wholly by foreign money, was it? Was it because there was a limitation as to how much a foreign company could invest in a, a business based in China? No, well, maybe there were from the American point of view. Yeah, they, they slowly worked the the uh, those barriers down, and they again very judiciously went about negotiating with China with American bureaucrats to let that level rise. And uh, you know, I'm also a fair amount of. It, I'm sure it went. Uh, you know, unrecorded, some sips, sips sank at sea and, hey, miraculously, the factory components actually made it to the shore. It's a fantastic you've, – you've never, you've never seen swimming like when you, when you see a blast furnace swim. It's, it's quite a remarkable thing. Um, so that's, that's the, the background. And, and therefore, they also – one thing the Chinese realised, they weren't the first country by a long shot to take advantage of low wage and establish free trade zones. Really, that began with countries like Malaysia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and so on. What, what they saw was, as the wage costs rose in one particular country, 
the factories would relocate to the lower wage country again. So as well as establishing a capitalist class by saying you've got to have a Chinese partner, pick this bloke at random. He happens to be the local president of the Communist Party. Oh, he's the local manager of a state enterprise. Why did you make him the the capitalist, zero monetary investment by him, uh, bang, he created a capitalist class at the same time. But you also made, because the, he then became a half owner in the business, he mm. wasn't going to relocate. So it, so it always had to stay there. The, yeah. um, but w- where has the state investment come then? I guess the, the state has invested in infrastructure. So you're saying a lot of foreign money coming in to, to establish these businesses, but you needed, um, you know, China as it was, needed railways, needed factories, needed yeah. roads. So they, so yeah. the government spent up big, and I guess that's why it's racked up uh, so much state investment and so much state debt. Yeah, well, there's, there's still um, a massive. It's, it's still a it's still a command economy. I mean, it, yes, it's capitalist, but it's got a command facet to it as well. But what's actually happened is that command facet has become more flexible over time. Uh, I'll give my favourite instance of just how severe. Um, the state control was and the absurdities that accompanied the beginning of the industrialization process. Just before uh, we left Australia, I had a group of about 10 Australian journalists from the leading newspapers uh, with me. And just before we left, there was a statistic coming out of China that heavy industry output had increased by, I think, 17%. And light industry had fallen by 7%. Now, this didn't make sense to us. You know, why does one go up, the other go down? It's just they should both be increasing, maybe one more than the other. But this huge disparity was quite a, quite a stunning thing to us. So we kept continued coming back to this question at every meeting we had. We had a you know, meeting with journalists, meeting with uh, uh, people who ran factories, meetings with um, officials as well. Every last answer began with, and I quote the translation, we followed the directives of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. And I said, okay, what does that mean? The first time we got a decent answer, we were in Shanghai, and we actually saw, we actually the way we came into Shanghai, we went past part of the harbour, and we saw steel that had been imported rusting on the, on the, on the sand mm-hmm. of these. Yeah. Anyway, we got there, and uh, we're talking to the guy with the mayor of Shanghai, and by you know the mayor of Shanghai, we're talking a mayor of a city of twenty million people now. God knows the big it was probably about ten million back then. So it's like we're virtually talking to a, a president of country, and he had with him a guy whose title was literally translated to us as the economic boss of Shanghai. <laughs> so he asked asked him the same question, got the same effing answer, and then said, "What does it mean?" And he said, "Well, the Communist Party sent out a directive to promote heavy industry." Okay, so what did you do? Quote unquote from the translation. We stripped light industry factories and turned them into heavy industry. <laughs> with it, right, with with no profit motive. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, and this is why I say it's a command economy. Mm. Now, what that what that means in terms of the infrastructure investment is that if they decide to finance something, they simply do it. Yeah. They do not go through all these. Oh dear, we can't handle the deficit, trade government deficit, and so on. They simply print the print the yuan. Uh, tell the people to start building the stuff and bang before you know it you've got high-speed railways everywhere right. in, in that sense the infrastructure side of china has been remarkable so they do have a magic money tree i guess the, the problem yes. that they've got now though is that some of those state in, uh, enterprises are now trying to invest overseas uh so we've got for example 900 billion dollars which is uh, being put into their belt and road infrastructure initiative which is all about using chinese money to expand their influence across asia and and into europe i guess as well so could they come unstuck with this i mean there is this concern isn't there and perhaps you can explain why it's such a concern that they've got this big flow of capital out of the country and that could be problematic for them 
Well, again, they're doing it fairly intelligently. I mean, they've, they've, they set off a credit bomb in uh, 2009 to counteract the impact of the GFC because uh, at that time, uh, roughly, I think roughly 40 million workers had to leave the coastal cities and return to the countryside because, in, again, because it's a command economy. You only get your social security if you're living where you're registered and you can't get registered um, easily uh, in the in the in the coastal cities, they'll tolerate you being there, but you've got to be earning a wage. So as soon as the downturn hit and China's exports fell by about forty percent during the global financial crisis, uh, that was politically very threatening to the Communist Party. So they set off the credit bubble and the banks started lending to everybody, including state enterprises, and bang, you had a boom. Um, but now, uh, it's such a strong economy, I mean, yeah, remarkably strong economy. Uh, the next stage of this is they are aware that there's a danger of a slowdown. I think they're aware of the danger of a slowdown. They wouldn't, we know more than, more than America, American politicians do about the dangers of private debt, maybe with the exception of Donald Trump. Uh, and they are building the Silk Road by sending Chinese workers with Chinese firms to install Chinese equipment in Kazakhstan and blah, 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 blah. And what you've got effectively is you're continuing this government spending boost, but it's being built outside the country and China ends up owning it. So the revenue will come back from that. Right. But if, if there is no revenue, if they're not making a profit, uh, if, if they start making a loss, they're making a loss in a foreign country, paying foreign workers in foreign currencies with foreign inputs well, as well, well paying actually, for they're in actually, foreign currencies. They're, they're actually paying Chinese workers in foreign countries uh, because the, the, no. most of the road is being struck mm. by China. But see, it, it is going to come out ahead because if you look at the shipping routes that are necessary to take Chinese goods to the UK, you've, you know, you've got two choices, Suez Canal around the Cape of Horn, um, uh, it, it's, it's incredibly expensive, whereas a railroad, uh, I don't know the actual cost difference, but it would be sort of 50% cheaper. I and mean, once you've got a railroad, there's no resistance you know, the, compared to being in the ocean. So the, the energy costs and the, and the monetary costs are lower, so it will come out ahead. Right, but they are being criticised for for that point that they are just employing Chinese workers. And I guess that is because they want to pay them in uh, in Chinese currency because it reduces the risk. Well, there's a kind of they've got to pay if they pay them in China's currency. They've got to have Chinese shops they can shop from in the country. I, I'm not frankly aware of whether they do that, and I, believe, I imagine they would do. But what they'd also they'd therefore be forced to pay maybe in foreign currency. Uh, so there's a bit of a, a foreign currency outflow that they've got to cope with as well. Yeah, which okay, which is a concern if they're racking up an enormous amount of debt. Yeah, but this is the thing because they're running a trade surplus overall. They can handle it. Yeah, you've got more American dollars coming in than are going out on the Silk Road. So will they? How long is this trade surplus going to continue for them, and what is going to challenge it? I mean, Donald Trump saying he's going to do something when he's coming from uh, a three hundred and forty-seven billion dollar balance in the wrong direction. He'd have to do a lot to try and correct that and get it back down to zero. Yeah, but bear in mind, by the way, that's about one and a half percent of the American GDP. Mm. Uh, you talk to twenty trillion GDP, you know, five hundred billion or less trade deficit. It's it's a concern, but it's nothing like the face the UK has, where it has a a five percent of GDP deficit. But anyway, um, that's just the with deficit that, with China, though. I'm talking about there. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, I, yeah, China, I think, is about twenty five percent of their trade, mind you. So it is a it it, it is a big concern for them. But, yeah, but yeah. my point, irrespective of what the figures are, the figures are still quite large. He's not going to fix it with a tariff. Is um, he? It could it could reduce it. I mean, this is one of the things that the trade policy has been a 
the only the only trade policy that's been acceptable under the neoliberal period for, for the last 40 years is reducing tariff barriers. So he's going to go into unacceptable policy. And that's one of the reasons I was, I was uh, slightly hopeful about his election um, being coming out to be less dreadful than it, it might have been. Of course, it's even more dreadful than I could have thought it would be. Mm. But he, no, he, no, he, he that, yeah. in a year's time, it'll be even more dreadful than we're thinking it is now. Yeah, he could put up tariffs. He could do it, and that would reduce the deficit to some degree. But, of course, it'll be American corporations that are screaming about it because predominantly, no, not, not anymore, but at one stage, predominantly, the imports from China were coming from American companies based in China. Uh, now they're coming from Foxon and stuff like that. So there'll be, But what will happen is companies like Apple will scream about their supply chain being made more expensive. And he's, he, what he's trying to do is wear that pain and then force them to relocate the supply chain to America. That's the, that's the tactic. The trouble is uh, the sophistication of Chinese factories, particularly places like Foxon, as horrible as they are to work in, the sophistication in terms of the production lines, the speed of processing, the quality of the uh, technology being used, it's far higher than America. But, I mean, the point is anybody could do that now, couldn't they? Because the, the advantage that China had initially was cheap labour, uh, but that is less important. Well, I guess two things. That, that cheap labour is going to change over time, isn't it, as, as China uh, grows and, uh, and starts to develop its own domestic economy i mean the wage expectations are going to go up but secondly as we as we know uh, automation is changing a lot of things there's less need for that cheap labor so surely you know a lot of this has come from investment based on the growth potential what's to stop us saying well we're going to re-industrialize a western nation has the advantage of an educated workforce it's got some established infrastructure it's got energy supplies all we need to do is spend the money to build these factories yeah, and that's pretty much what Trump's uh, rationale was, which is one reason I was slightly hopeful. But And you can see the example of it. I mean, uh, I mean I, let's talk about an American uh, that people like uh, in general, and that's Elon Musk. Uh, the Tesla car is assembled in America. The Tesla um, um, batteries are assembled there. The SpaceX is assembled there. And the technological focus they've taken has so dramatically reduced the costs of space explore, uh, space travel in particular uh, that, yeah, you can do it in America and build up the school level. But I really recommend people take a look um, uh, for uh, what look for, look for Elon Musk blooper reel on the internet, something of that nature. And Elon Musk just last week published something, it's not easy to land on your ass or something of that, that nature. And he, to the tune of Monty Python, he showed all these rocket attempts to land a rocket back on its on its uh, tail and therefore re- reduce the cost by a factor of 100. He shows all of these bloopers of them exploding for all sorts of reasons. It's extremely funny. But the point he's making is that it takes practice and it takes experience before yeah. you get to the point where you design something that doesn't break down. Now, that's that takes, in, in SpaceX's case, and it, you know, it is rocket science, but it has taken them about five years. Um, again, the same thing applies with America. Were they to move those supply chains back, it would be a five to ten year process to do it. For the things that currently exist, but uh, it, the, uh, there is the question of what's next. But the, your point about Elon Musk shows the importance of intellectual property and gets back to the guy sitting in the lavatory trying to dissect you know, how something is made. Mm. That's the real danger, isn't it? Because China has been taking that intellectual property and then productizing it and getting the uh, you know the the production into place. Um, yeah. if, if they were prevented from doing that, 
then uh, there's more chance that uh, the, the work would continue onshore in America. And anything that's new, surely they've got to stop that. Into I mean, I know there's an investigation going on right now in the United States, and this sort of this discussion has sort of highlighted the importance of intellectual property. And and perhaps Donald Trump is right to show that this is a big concern for them. They need to hang on to that so they can industrialize whatever inventions come out of the United States or the UK or anywhere else other than China. Yeah, but the trouble is the Ameri- what America actually uh, obsesses about is, is maintaining its uh, service exports because uh, the, the copyright and patents and stuff like that, you ne- I believe you have you need to have them, but they should be transitional. Uh, and once, once mm. your patent's over, then that's it. And it should only reflect the lifetime of the inventor. It shouldn't be based on uh, the lifetime of the family of the inventor, which is effectively infinite. Now, uh, what is... Uh, in America's case, they actually refer to the copyright uh, legislation as the Mickey Mouse clause. And the reason for that is whenever it's about to be the case that Mickey Mouse is going to go out of Disney's copyright, the law's adjusted to extend the copyright another 10 or 15 years. I think Disney, I think Disney has had the copyright in Mickey Mouse now for something like 80 years. And at the same time, they, uh, you, you can protect you know, to some extent, you can predict the Mickey, the Mickey Mouse uh, in terms of movies, yada yada yada. But you can't protect the uh, industrial side of simply people buy one of your goods, take them apart, and see how they work, learn how to make it, and then try to improve it over time. That's exactly what China's done on the industrial front. Yeah. By the way, I think Mickey Mouse might have had his might have had his day. Even that uh, copyright might. Uh, be happy to expire without having any repercussions. I don't think my kids have seen a Mickey Mouse movie in their life so far. Uh, but I mean, my, my point about IP though is that if you invent something, um, you, you have surely you want it to be produced in your own country. You're inventing it to be produced, and that that's part of the life cycle rather than seeing it ripped off. And isn't that part of the concern that this uh, you know we can make it cheaper in China? You look at the stuff you can buy online from China, for example. You can get brand ripoffs for just about everything for half the price. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know, been a nice little uh, profit owner for, for uh, China. My first time, actually, a girlfriend of mine gave me, she didn't like my sports watch. This is going back 30 years, guys, so it's not not new story. She got your Mickey uh, Mouse but- watch. No, not that bad. She gave me she gave me a Rolex, which was a Mickey Mouse watch. But she took she, she took off. She said, "You can't wear that uh, digital thing anymore. Put this Rolex on. It's a Rolex." Client. I said, "Is it real?" She said, "No, it's a yeah, it's a copy." But you know, and okay, I'm looking at it. And at nine o'clock in the in the evening, the, the date changed. <laughs> Well, that was China time. Yeah, but these days, of course, the quality is that much higher. But um, it, it's a question of what actually makes lets you hang on to that capital as well. So let's take, take the UK uh, uh, manufacturer again. I've got a lot of time for Dyson. Now, Dyson developed its, its vacuum te- uh, technology in the UK, produced it for a while here, but once it was established – the cost advantages of moving, I think they moved to China, I'm not sure, uh, moving to China was so great that he was tempted to do it. John Mills, who, of course, is uh, a major lobbyist here, a major industrialist stroke retailer, uh, the biggest donor to the Labor Party and a huge campaigner uh, to worry about saying the trade deficit matters, not uh, not the government deficit. He was forced, uh, in order to say, remain in business. He was forced to take his production offshore. Right. So but, but the if, pressures if, are high. But if, but if the pressure is for is for low wages, and that was has been China's advantage, yeah. that will disappear over time as we don't see the importance of uh, uh, of wages because we rely less less on salaried workers. But also, the, the you know the cost of paying people in China increases as well. Surely yeah, that China right. advantage is going to disappear, and Donald yeah. Trump's going to have less to worry about. 
It is. It, it, and it's happening already. I mean, if, uh, if you've I've been to China a few, few, about four or five times in the last three years, and every town I've been to, the living standards, just in terms of, you know, with the cars that are on the street, how crowded the restaurants are, the clothing people are wearing, uh, how relaxed people look, um, it's really, uh, it feels like a first world country. It doesn't feel like a, a second, like a third world anymore at all. Very, very different to Malaysia or Indonesia or uh, India. You know, you, 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 you know you're in poverty when you go to any other country. China, you feel like, hey, I've stopped off the plane. Was this a domestic flight or an international? So, yes, there's cost versus rising. And the other side, manufacturing, of course, we're getting 3D printing. Uh, and when, now we're seeing actual quite, uh, quite workable 3D printing of houses. Um, the the technological impetus is going to be to shift back. You don't, you're going to reduce the need for unskilled workers to be wiring components together. And as you do that, the labor advantage of countries like China will dissipate. Right. So D- Donald Trump's strategy, tariffs if you want to, uh, it'll make a bit of a difference, but maybe won't change the world. Definitely invest in infrastructure to get yourself ready for when China slows. And thirdly, watch China slow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's why and the, the reason I had a certain amount of hope was he's talking about infrastructure, but he's completely and absolutely stuffed that up, mm. uh, even to the stage where I don't think the, he has going to have a, he, one of his election pledges. He's going to form an infrastructure council to bring together the best minds in American business to help work out what infrastructure needs to be fixed. And that was the week he said that to Charlottesville, there was trouble on both sides and there were very good people on both sides of the dispute, including neo-Nazis. Uh, and bang, uh, the Infrastructure Council people, that's it. It didn't get formed. Well, it is a case, isn't it, of complaining about your competition rather than doing something about it, rather than actually trying to do what they're doing and do it better. We'll just complain about the fact that they're doing it and they seem to be getting away with it. And that seems to be the, the approach that's taken uh, increasingly around the world. And yet everybody now has a, a, a bigger chance than ever to do the same yeah. thing. The governments yeah. could be investing their own money into building the infrastructure that's needed uh, in an economy where we were less reliant on people. Yeah, but the trouble is governments are run by people like uh, Theresa May, who believes there is no magic money tree. Yeah. Now, she's right. There are actually two of them. <laughs> One is the banks and the other is the government. The government can spend more than it takes back in taxes. That's what it has to do to finance the infrastructure. That's what China has done. Uh, but this obsession with balancing the budget is one reason the infrastructure doesn't get bit. So they spend their time complaining rather than doing anything about it. She needs to go down the garden path and discover the magic money tree. You need to take her by the hand, uh, just like uh, Donald Trump did, uh, Steve, and uh, show where it is. Uh, it would, could change the world. Good to talk. Yeah, indeed, mate. Good fun. Uh, it does sound like something out of an Enid Blyton novel, doesn't it? The magic money tree uh, with a different world at the top. Uh, we could have the, the land of monetarism, the land of austerity, the land of income discrepancy. I think we've done a podcast on all of these uh, for each different world. Who would be the saucepan man? I don't know if you've read the uh, the magic faraway tree. You had the saucepan man who was cluttering around, looking very disheveled, not listening to anyone. Does sound a bit like Boris, doesn't it? Uh, And speaking of Boris and Brexit, next time, would a United States of Europe work, economically speaking? The remaining EU members seem to be striving for it, at least some of them do. Uh, Could it work? Could Winston Churchill's utopian vision come to pass, even if the UK is not part of it? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Till then, I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.